Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region, in partnership with Friends of Latin America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast every Wednesday evening on Code Pink YouTube Live. Tonight's episode is Maestros Voluntarios, celebrating 61 years of Cuba's National Literacy Program. On Friday, April 22nd, Cuba will celebrate the 61st anniversary of the very first youth brigade sent to the Cuban countryside to teach reading and writing to the predominantly illiterate rural population. This is a highly successful post-revolution project that has been emulated across the world. Joining us today to celebrate and further discuss the Cuban excuse me, folks, the Cuban literacy campaign is Catherine Murphy, director of the film Maestro, and Nancy Wright, a 12-year veteran of public education in the DC metropolitan area. She's currently working in Baltimore and has had experience in both the private and public sector of education. Nancy is also a member of our broadcast partner, Friends of Latin America. So welcome, Catherine and Nancy. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you so, so much. So pleased to have you both with, with us. And I'm really, really excited about this particular episode. It marks such a historic an such a historic anniversary of a really, really um, profoundly successful education model and something that's been replicated across the world in other countries with great success. And I think that I also want to thank Friends of Latin America, specifically Leslie Salgado. Um, Friends of Latin America is a broadcast partner of this program, as many of you know. And this was Leslie's initiative, her idea to um, celebrate this anniversary. So a big shout out to you, Leslie, for that. So I want all of you to meet Catherine Murphy um, first, because I want Catherine to give us a little bit of background to the Cuban literacy program. And there's something really unique about this particular um, April 22nd date. And um, it's a precursor to what a lot of us know as the 1961 literacy program. And that was something new for me to learn in, in helping put this program together. And then we'll have Catherine introduce uh, this project. We're gonna watch uh, a 17 minute video short of two, uh, two uh, brigadiers in conversation. And then I want all of you to meet Nancy and we'll do a have a little bit of a comparative conversation on how successful the Cuban education uh, project has been in comparison to some of the realities of public education in the United States. So, so with that, I welcome all of you and uh, welcome Catherine. And why don't you give us a bit of background of what we're celebrating this week? Thank you so much. Thank you for holding this event, for uh, recognizing this historical moment together and for uh, hosting this conversation. Um, so I work with an organization, my name is Catherine Murphy, as you said, I work with an organization called the Literacy Project. We are a multiracial, multicultural, multi-generational group of folks who see education as a human right and are using multimedia documentation to um, document, lift up, celebrate, and share stories of successful adult literacy experiences in the Americas and successful 
social movement education projects, how justice movements have seen education as a core issue and worked to promote it and what we, the, the continued lessons for all of us in those um, experiences. The first and, and the core, at the core of our work is documentary film, not exclusively documentary film, but it really is the core of our work. And the first film well, we did- Well, including your fabulous film, Maestro. Maestro. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Terry. So, so our first film was Maestra, which uh, last year was the 61st anniversary of the Cuban literacy campaign of 1961. And it was the 10 year anniversary of the Maestro film being on the road. The Maestro film was released uh, in the 50th anniversary year of the Cuban literacy campaign. And then last year was the 61st year and it remains, I mean, the Cuban literacy campaign really remains one of the peak moments in the social history of the Americas without a doubt. There is so much, it's like this infinite sea of beautiful stories about how a country could bring education to all, how a country can become fully literate, how a society can become fully literate, and not just literacy, like basic literacy, which is so important and so invisible. It's so all around us in the United States and so invisible here. And Nancy Wright will speak more about that um, later and we can all talk about that more. But, you know, what do the lessons of Cuba, becoming fully literate, bringing education to all, seeing education as a human right and making it happen with the involvement of the whole nation? What is this experience? have to teach us in the United States today about access to education and literacy, but also as a debt-free access to education, debt-free free access, access. Yeah. free and universal yeah. access to education yeah. from early childhood, you know, circulos infantiles for children with two working parents, all the way up through advanced degrees, you know, university, like, you know, K to 12, and universities and advanced degrees like medical school and law school. And this is a good moment to also shout out ELAM and the Latin American medical school that's given free medical education to students all throughout the world, especially from developing world countries, but from developing world communities in the United States, black and brown communities in the United States who um, have a chronic shortage of doctors and young people from many black and brown communities around the US are being educated as doctors in Cuba. I think, I don't know what the total graduation rate is now, the number of US doctors, do you know, Terry, that have graduated from Elam? I, I wanna like, say 140 or 240. I, yep, I think so, yeah. so it was right in there, right? Cause I, it was 100 a few years ago, so it's yeah. gotta be. It was right? like 123 a, a number of years ago, but um, I think actually you and I were in New York when that, or in Washington when that, uh, milestone. Announced. So it's, yeah. yeah. So it's well you know, over so, that now. So this, you know, it's like the commitment to healthcare for all commitment to education for all how those things cross and like medical education and free medical care and something as important as Elam and what they're giving to us this amazing network of Elam grads that are now practicing around the United States. Um, so they're like infinite lessons in all of this for us. So, um, the Maestro film and the journey with the Maestro film has been incredibly special and beautiful um, to travel around the United States. Most of that traveling um, uh, the, was done with the film and Dr. Norma Guillard, uh, Afro-Cuban feminist psychologist, who's one of the protagonists in the Maestro film. And she spent almost five years traveling around, or we spent sometimes together, sometimes apart, uh, almost five years traveling around the United States, showing this film 
and part contributing to, or with the intent to contribute to helping US audiences think differently about Cuba, you know, rethink Cuba, think differently about Cuba, see all the lessons we have to learn from Cuba, but also to start to think differently about right here and what's yeah. possible right here and what we can be doing differently or need to do differently. So, you know, this was an ongoing road. And when we found ourselves in the global pandemic a couple of years ago, the creative team that made the Maestro film, we started just looking back in our archives, like doing what we could from home, really committed to keep working together, um, to work safely from our own homes um, and to push this work forward. When going back into our own archives, we found this beautiful interview of the two women educators that you will see tonight, Ana Deborah Mola and Belkis Lesky. And we interviewed them together. They interviewed, they're, they're in conversation with each other about a block away from the Martin Luther King Center in Havana, oh. where they both are uh, neighbors of the Martin Luther King Center. And they were telling us a story about being on the pilot brigades. And they were both part of what they call the Primer Llamada, which was the first call that was made, that happened, started on April 22nd, 1960. So the year before the massive national literacy campaign of 1961, the first call was made on April 22nd, 1960. And about you know, 1,500 to 2,000 young people stepped forward as volunteers to go into rural communities around the country and start to do a literacy census start to do healthcare census, start to open, build with their own hands and together with the campesinos, build the first schools in those communities. And they really lay the groundwork. They really lay the groundwork for what became the massive national campaign the following year. So the Maestro film opens with this moment in September 1960, where Fidel Castro announces to the UN General Assembly that Cuba will become free of illiteracy within one year. And I really didn't get until we started working with this new material that that announcement was not only based on a solid commitment and faith of what was possible, but on the early work that these pilot brigades were already doing. Oh. And so- See, I didn't know that either. I find that that's just like a, a little chunk of gold, a little diamond there for all of us. <laughs> That he had so, that inspiration and knew that he knew that it was physically, infrastructure-wise, human capacity-wise, possible to pull this off. He had like a little prototype. <laughs> it's, it's exactly. Fabulous. Yeah. So um, I guess be, I will show the film to you all now. It's 17 minutes long. Um, I think that maybe the only other thing I want to say, well, a couple, a couple other points to make before we show the film is just in thinking about like, you know, Code Pink's work and building a, you know, peace work and looking at alternatives to a military industrial complex and to a military economy, you know, funding things like robust education as, you know, along with housing and healthcare and other core needs. But this is the kind of thing that our, what we're about to see is the kind of project that our, um, resources as a nation should be going into. And I also want to um, name and lift up the work right before this, I was on a call with the US Women in Cuba collaboration of which I am proud to be a part. And we've been organizing for many years, building bridges between Cuba and the women's movement in the United States, between the Cuba Solidarity Movement and looking at 
Cuba uh, from through women's eyes, looking at how Cuba has advanced the lives of women, fins and gender non-conforming people. We have specific work around lesbians and building bridge between lesbian organizations and looking at how both Cuba has, the policies of the Cuban revolution have advanced the lives of women, larger numbers of women in representational government, the Cuban family code, free and access health, uh, um, access to reproductive rights, all aspects of reproductive rights and you know, early childhood education, birth, birthing and maternal health that Catherine Hall Trujillo's work really lifts up. And so there are so many ways in which we have to look, to look at Cuba, but also thinking about like, you know, feminist foreign policy and what our approach to Cuba, how different our approach to Cuba could be. Um, and, you know, encouraging totally opposite from blockading and sanctioning and trying to strangle to death a neighbor nation uh, through economic warfare and other kinds of warfare, we really could have a feminist foreign policy that engaged our neighbor nation of Cuba and looked at how we could help each other, teach, learn from each other, how we have so much to learn from Cuba here and um, to let Cuba live. So on that note, I'd like to share the film. Is there anything else you need to say, you wanna say, Terry? No, I think, I, you know, no, I, I thank you. I'm so happy you're with us this evening. I'm thrilled that we're gonna um, see this conversation between these two brigadiers and, um, and, and thank you for uh, promoting so much of our work here at Code Pink. So, and, and supporting us in so many ways because we, we so love you and support all of your work. So it's a, it's a wonderful relationship. Thank you, thank you. Ready for the film? Okay, everyone. Ms. Nancy Ryder, are we ready for the film? I am ready. Yes. Okay. okay. Wonderful. Here we go. I'm All of you are going to love share. this. 17 minutes long, and then we'll rejoin. Nancy Wright will give us her wise words, and we'll be able to take some questions, right? So here we go. I'm yeah. sharing screen. Let me give you a full screen of the film. There. And play. Should have sound. clases más necesitadas que la clase campesina era analfabeta completa en nuestro país. Por tanto, marchamos en el primer contingente donde íbamos alrededor de 1500 jóvenes. se había comenzado a alfabetizar al ejército rebelde, a los campesinos en las diferentes zonas donde nosotros estuvimos. 
bueno, nos graduamos como maestros voluntarios y de inmediato comenzamos a realizar el censo, a construir nuestras escuelas, no eran escuelas hechas con una microbrigada ni con construcciones modernas, eran escuelas que hacíamos nosotros mismos con el recurso de los campesinos. Y trabajaron sin descanso durante cinco días hasta dejar terminada la escuela a la que pusieron el nombre de un héroe de la ciudad lejana. Al llegar al lugar destinado que era la Sierra Maestra, allí primeramente se nos fue ubicando en distintos campamentos. nosotros la escuela donde nos íbamos a formar no existía teníamos que construirla nosotros entonces uno de los objetivos precisamente era prepararnos para esas condiciones adversas y por eso no teníamos ninguna comunidad y bueno ya fuimos nosotros debajo de los árboles, sentado en las plantas, que eran nuestro mobiliario. Nuestra casa era una hamaca que nos dieron con un nylon. Yo recuerdo que yo no podía, yo me mojé durante todo el tiempo, porque yo no sabía bien cómo colocar el nylon. Había que colocar la hamaca y poner un palito por el medio, y entonces encima el nylon para guarecernos de, de la lluvia, y todos los días llovía. Mucho trabajo, porque bueno, allí todo era eh, juventud, alegría, bullicio, porque estábamos contentos, a pesar de que estábamos ausentes de nuestro familiar. Allí si te caía, era lluvia, la, íbamos a comer y en el agua, así en la, en la bandeja de la comida caía el agua y se juntaba todo, el arroz, el potaje, el pedazo de guayaba y la lluvia, y así comíamos ante toda esa situación. con nosotros, como si nos hubieran eh, conocido de mucho tiempo. Algunos de nosotros vivíamos en la propia escuela, pero otras, las mujeres, por ejemplo yo, que era una muchacha jovencita, muy joven, vivíamos en casa de un campesino, a los cuales ayudábamos económicamente y nos integrábamos a las labores como un miembro más de la
esos campesinos a los cuales nosotros vivimos constituyeron parte de nuestra familia. Todavía hoy yo visito esos campesinos de hace más de 47 años. En la casa donde estuvimos formamos una familia más. Quiere decir que nuestros padres a la vez venían a la casa donde nosotros paramos a ver cómo estaban y se iban muy contentos, que eran muy bien recibidos, que eran muy bien acogidos y que nosotros nos sentíamos encantados de la vida. Para menos a mí fue una familia encantadora los dos lugares donde yo viví. improvisamos y a veces hasta en hojas de los árboles escribían cuando no llegaban las libros. El contenido de la clase era aritmética, español, cívica, le damos diferentes asignaturas. Igual que aparte de eso, de darle la clase a los niños por la mañana, los mayorcitos, la tarde. Damos clase y por la noche los adultos. No habría un componedor para dar las clases de matemática, pero sumamos con piedrecita, con palitos, con lo que sea, y comenzamos a dar nuestras clases. Cuando trabajábamos por la noche, dándole las clases a los adultos, no teníamos con qué alumbrar. Era con una chismosa, que le llamábamos así. Con la chismosa era con lo que nosotros enseñábamos. Por la tarde, después que yo terminaba las clases, con los chiquiticos, en ese lapso de tiempo, entre el mediodía y las dos de la tarde, que tocaba, le tocaba al otro grupo, yo enseñaba a las niñas a bordar y a tejer. Hasta eso yo hice. Teníamos condiciones, después yo le mostraré algunas láminas de las condiciones ¿no? del campo, la sierra maestra, lo que yo le explicaba de la hamaca donde dormíamos. ¿No ve? Este es un maestro durmiendo en la hamaca ya en el campamento. Ustedes han oído hablar de los trabajadores sociales ahora. Nosotros no solamente dábamos clases, nosotros inscribimos a los niños que nacieron allí, que nunca se habían registrado civilmente, casamos a los matrimonios. Y una de las cosas fundamentales es que muchos niños morían parasitados, desnutridos. Lo primero que empezamos a hacer fue un trabajo educacional, mostrarles, enseñarles a los campesinos la necesidad de por qué tenían que usar zapatos, nos enseñaron a inyectar, vacunamos a los campesinos. Allí nosotros nos vimos hasta en la necesidad de hacer un parto a veces. Los pelotones que trabajan por la mañana, por la tarde estudian, y al revés. Un apretado programa de 13 asignaturas a vencer en cuatro meses consume una porción considerable del tiempo. Se forman en las montañas porque en ellas habrán de enseñar y necesitan conocerlas y conocer a los campesinos. Se trata de un concepto nuevo de la educación que tiene en cuenta el lugar donde se va a impartir y las necesidades populares. Una educación arraigada en la realidad, en la vida y para la vida. Dentro de nosotros hubo una figura que fue el mártir que presidió toda esta campaña de alfabetización, el símbolo de la campaña de alfabetización. Mi compañera tuvo el honor de ser compañera de campamento de Congreso. 
Conrado Benítez era, siempre decimos un muchacho, porque él tenía 19 años y era muy jovencito. Muy serio, muy respetuoso. Le gustaban las tareas de, de compartir con todos los demás. Él estaba ubicado en una escuelita en el Estambray. Ese día da la casualidad que me habían invitado a almorzar a casa de un campesino que tenía un radiecito de pija. Entonces estoy yo, la hora del noticiero, y en eso la noticia... Yo recuerdo que yo dije, Conrado Benítez, no puede ser, no puede ser. Ese es el compañero nuestro, es mi compañero, mi compañero. Me tuve que sentar a meditar aquel crimen horrendo que pensaron que con eso iban a, a tratar de, de, que, de que la campaña no, no, no se hiciera. Aquella graduación terminó con llanto porque era un compañero nuestro, el cual sentimos enormemente que se hubiese asesinado en condiciones que solamente llevaba su libro para enseñar. Una de las cosas que nos comprometió aún más, aparte de que ya nosotros conocíamos esta tarea, era la tarea alfabetizar. Su mamá escribió una canción dedicada a Conrado de Nietes. para escribir poemas. Y ella y le hizo un verso dedicado al mártir Conrado Benítez. Yo lo pudiera decir cantado o recitado, de cuál forma pudiera cantado. Bueno, ella lo dedicó así. Conrado Benítez, maestro mártir de Cuba, donde todos los cubanos te han querido recordar, han formado una brigada para ir a alfabetizar, llevando tu nombre sano y así poderte honrar. En este año se ha cumplido un compromiso moral, no queda un analfabeto en nuestra Cuba triunfal. Ganaron los brigadistas la gran batalla final. Adiós, analfabetismo. Mal de todos los pueblos, Cuba ha vencido ya. Nosotros estábamos ahí, ya habíamos arrancado si con algo de la alfabetización, pero no de una manera masiva 
como se hizo cuando ya llegaron los brigadistas que ya apoyaron más fuerte el trabajo de, de la alfabetización. ¿Cuál fue nuestra tarea allí, aparte de ubicar a los estudiantes jóvenes que venían, eh, asesorarlos? asesorarlo porque ya teníamos un poquitico, un poquitico de experiencia metodológica. Habíamos recibido los cursos de los diferentes manuales con los cuales ellos trabajarían. Eh, sabríamos y estábamos preocupados también de que ellos se sintieran bien y que a su vez cuando sus familiares vinieran a verlo, los vieran en lugares seguros, bien protegidos, bien atendidos. Esa era nuestra tarea fundamental. Aprendimos de ellos que eran personas bondadosas, muy sinceras. A pesar de que han transcurrido los años, muchos de ellos nos escriben y nos dicen, maestra, soy ingeniero, o mis hijos ya también son eh, maestros, enfermeros, o sea, que todavía nos recuerdan. Todavía nos recuerdan y yo estoy consciente de que sí, porque cuando nosotros nos fuimos, ellos lloraban. Ellos lloraron cuando vieron que preparábamos ya la, la mochila y nuestras pertenencias, que ya íbamos a partir del lugar. Ellos lloraban. Educar es una obra bilateral. Usted da, pero usted también recibe. Yo llevo 47 años en la docencia y todos los días recibo de mis alumnos. Yo, digo, yo los amo a ustedes, es verdad que como decía Martí, es una obra de infinito amor, tú das pero tú recibes, es una enseñanza nueva recibimos nosotros de esa, de, de esa profesión que nosotros aprendimos aquí hay locuras para la esperanza hay locuras también del dolor y hay locuras de allá, donde el cuerpo no alcanza, locuras de otro color. Hay locuras que son poesía, hay locuras de un raro lugar. Hay locuras sin nombre, sin fecha, sin cura, que no vale la pena curar. Y de Dios Hay locuras que hicieron el día Hay locuras que están por venir Hay locuras tan vivas, tan sanas, tan puras Que una de ellas será mi morir Okay. 
Yay! Bravo! <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you, so, you much. so much. Really beautiful and inspiring. And um, oh, our next. Um, Oh, thank you, Leslie. I see in our chat. Thank you. It really was really a beautiful film of beautiful women, beautiful country, beautiful vision for themselves. And uh, that turned into to a reality. And so I'd like for our audience to meet um, Nancy Wright, who is in the US education sector. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you very much. And one thing that's interesting, I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I, I was just going to say as an educator, one of the uh, literacy skills that's promoted is for students to be able to compare and contrast. And my goodness, what a contrast uh, education in Cuba is to education in the US. One thing you know, that I, a, uh, I'm sorry. A couple of things where you're, you're mm -hmm. saying, you know, the comparing and contrasting. There's a couple things and um, that Catherine, out of this beautiful film, and we should celebrate your work on this, um, there was one thing that the teacher said that education, as you say, Nancy, education is a reciprocal process. So it was an, in the case of this um, program that we're celebrating the 61st anniversary, it was a end with the end with the program that Fidel Castro introduced. It was an urban rural exchange, rural urban exchange, and then um, the women also said teacher student exchange, student teacher exchange, and so here you are reinforcing that. I wish we could do more of that in the states. <laughs> I do too, and and it's so different to my experience as an educator here in the U.S. Uh, so. I have uh, taught in different kinds of schools. I've taught in public and private, um, and, and I've taught in uh, independent schools. I've taught in, in very well-financed schools and, and very, uh, I'd say schools where the population uh, is, is extremely uh, poverty-stricken economically. Uh, so I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in a moment, um, but I'd like to share with you, if I may, PowerPoint. Um, and I'm going to put it up right now. Okay. Okay. So I entitled my PowerPoint Creating Awareness and Responsibility, the Role of Education in Society because different societies have different purposes for education. And I talked about uh, how impressed I was with, with Cuba, contrasting it and comparing it with what exists here. Um, in Cuba, it seems like education is viewed as a right, um, but here uh, it's almost a privilege and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, and the other thing that was really striking is that, that the people who were teaching, um, as well as the people who were learning, did it as an act of love. Um, but here it's more or less for a salary. I mean, it's a job and, and even a job that some teachers are kind of burnt out, don't really have that um, energy and, and love and, and dedication and connection with the people that they teach. So in the US, we think of teachers and classrooms as an adult professional uh, that probably has a, at least a master's degree or higher standing in front of a group of children, 
uh, working with them. Uh, I'm a teacher working with them for at least 12 years, maybe more, um, trying to uh, help them achieve literacy. And in Cuba, uh, revolutionary Cuba took a different approach and they didn't have the benefit of a large staff of professional educators, uh, but they recruited and I'm sorry, that should have said recruited, okay? Uh, just everyday people, ordinary people, some as young as 10 years old, to help raise the literacy rate from 60% to over 96% in the period of one year, which is a staggering increase. It's an unheard of increase. Uh, but yet with all the wealth, with all the power, with all the universities, with all the libraries, all the professionals, the US has never matched people's success. And the question in my mind was, how is that possible? How is it possible to be such a difference when Cuba had so few uh, material resources and the United States has so much? So the reason that it's different is because of the purpose of education. And education serves different purposes for different people in different societies. So in Cuba, their goal was to eradicate illiteracy. And they wanted to create an aware, responsible, happy, fulfilled population. Cubans are given opportunities to fulfill their aspirations, to know what's going on in the world, to engage in the process of solving social problems. As we see that now every day with um, some of the amazing accomplishments that come out of Cuba, uh, they are inspired and they, are, they inspire others. And the goal of their education was to be prepared to uh, provide a maximum contribution to their nation and indeed to the world. So what is literacy and what is illiteracy? And illiteracy is defined as the inability to read and write in any language. And you're considered Ill, uh, legally illiterate if you can't use printed information to function in society. Um, in the United States, uh, there is a, well, two thirds of students um, uh, in the United States who ca uh, cannot read I'm sorry, two thirds of students in the United States are not able to read by uh, the fourth grade. I'm sorry, who cannot read by the fourth grade will end up in jail or on welfare. Now that's not to say that two thirds of the students in the United States can't read, uh, but there is not a, a, a uh, literacy rate that matches Cuba. So right now the United States literacy rate is hovering around maybe 85 to 90%. And that's deceptive um, because some people have literacy skills, but their literacy skills are very low. And this is important because I teach elementary school. It says the fourth grade is a watershed year. So if a child can't read by the fourth grade, it's very unlikely that they'll ever catch up. And that's in the US. Students who don't read proficiently by the third grade are likely to drop out more likely than their peers. And most, uh, uh, nearly 85% of, of uh, young people who end up in juvenile um, uh, justice system are functionally illiterate. And that proves that there is a connection between literacy and um, activities, uh, criminal activity, because not because they're bad people, but because their choices are severely limited. Um, in US institution, uh, um, prisons, institutions, more than 60% of inmates are functionally illiterate. Also 75% of US citizens who receive food stamps perform at the lowest uh, levels of literacy and 90% of high school dropouts are on welfare. And that's not to disparage people who receive public assistance. 
instance, is just to say that their opportunities have been so limited, it is very difficult for them to, uh, to be able to feed their families or to earn sufficient income. And in the US, one in four children in the US uh, grow up without ever learning how to read. And that's a staggering figure. Wow. So I talked a little bit about the different schools and I talked about the fact that in the US, education is a privilege. There's a picture of uh, in Baltimore City, which is where I teach. I, I don't, I, uh, well, I teach. Uh, and this is a picture of children inside a classroom. Uh, you might've seen this on the news a couple of years ago. They're wearing their coats and they're freezing because there's no heat in their building. Um, and there's not really an environment that's conducive to learning. Even the teacher you can see in the back has a coat on um, and, and they're cold. And it, it, it didn't matter if the temperature went down below freezing, this is the environment that students were expected to uh, learn. By contrast, this is another school that I taught. Um, this is a school called Sandy Spring Friends School. And this is a, a K through 12 school, uh, which looks like a college campus, a university campus. Uh, this is a school where um, the tuition is out of reach for most people. Um, I think tuition is about $60,000 a year, um, depending on, on the grade level and depending on whether you need certain things like transportation and things like that. Um, uh, okay, I'm sorry, the tuition alone is $38,000 per year. Uh, boarding for students who live in dormitories is an additional, on top of that, an additional $67,000 a year. And there are mundane things like bus transportation. It might add another $3,000. Um, there are, books, book fees, which, you know, all these things had thousands of dollars. So it's very conceivable that a family could end up paying over $100,000 for their child to attend this school. Um, if you have more than one child, and that's a lot of money, it's out of reach to most people. But this was an education that is, I mean, it was an amazing opportunity for people who had the chance to go there to learn. They had everything at, at school. And this is not a school that the masses of people um, could ever dream of attending. So why is it like that? And it's like that because poverty is profitable. Uh, wealth is acquired in a capitalist nation uh, by exploiting others. Uh, it does not exist in isolation. It's a direct result of exploitation. So therefore, impoverishment is deliberate. It's a deliberate strategy to maintain a class of people who cannot uh, demand a sufficient salary for their labor power. So therefore, uh, the owners of corporations are able to pay them very low wages and to maximize their own profit. And it's illogical to believe that capitalism really has any desire to ever eradicate poverty like Cuba did. Um, and therefore a high illiteracy rate and a low political consciousness serve capitalism. And it does in three important ways. So the first way is that people, as I said, with low le uh, levels of literacy are forced to perform tedious labor that people with a strong education uh, completely reject. And it's their low literacy is used as a justification for keeping their wages low. Uh, enslaving people in colonizing nations were, uh, they at one time provided the most ideal conditions for capitalist growth. Um, but people wouldn't tolerate those things anymore. And those overt forms of oppression are not possible 
but capitalism is possible. So you can still exploit people by giving them a little bit wage and, and don't call them a slave. They're just uh, workers now. And the second reason is people who lack skills um, also lack sometimes the, uh, the tools to analyze what is the, what the cause of their oppression is and therefore don't challenge oppression. So it's very easy to convince you know, people like me, I don't make a lot of money, to, but it's easy to convince people, you know, workers, well, maybe if you had gotten more education, you would earn more money. Or maybe if you work harder, look at this person, they work very hard. Or, you know, maybe um, if, you know, you're not smart enough or you're inferior, you're just not lucky. I mean, there's lots and lots of excuses. Um, but if people have a correct analysis of capitalism, then they're going to fight against it. So that's another goal of keeping people unaware of and then finally, people with genuine political awareness reject repression altogether of others, and they reject degradation of the earth. So this is a little bit different. It's not just rejecting it from the standpoint of the person being oppressed, but it would be a rejecting it on behalf of all oppressed people and not and just rejecting these ideas that, that people are lazy or criminals or in, inferior or dangerous and recognizing that people are oppressed because of capitalism. So these are three very important motives that, that capitalism has no desire to have a, a, an educated population. Uh, we see now in the news that, that laws are being enacted to, keep, to prevent teachers from teaching um, the truth about history particularly, and to prevent teachers from teaching the truth about geopolitics. So things are going on in the world that we have no idea about um, as a population here in the United States. And the goal is to keep us um, uh, from learning those things. And if a teacher tries to teach them, they're fired um, these days or lose their license. Um, and they're labeled um, as unpatriotic and children, they're labeled as making white children sad and embarrassing them or trying to incite riots among people who are, are oppressed. Um, all these excuses to prevent teaching history. So as a result, we the people can't read. We can't read, we can't read well, and we can't analyze well. So this is a um, chart that I really like, um, and it's old, it's, it's actually out of date because you'll notice the most recent date. I mean, something says present, but I think at the time this was present, it was probably about 2012 or 2013. Mm -hmm. So, this is a, um, a display of countries that the United States has either invaded or overthrown their leader or has had some participation in, uh, in overthrowing democratically elected leaders or at least attempting to. Uh, the year is here and the asterisks represent the places where it was actually successful. The one that surprised me was France, France. And why is France on that list? Because they were about to give uh, 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 to give Algeria uh, liberation from colonization, and the United States said, "No, no, we don't want a French government who is going to, you know, liberate their colonies." So the United States was fully prepared to overthrow the French government uh, to try to prevent that from happening, which I think is stunning. And the reason that a lot of people in America are complacent is because we like a lifestyle. 
people around the world are being thrown off their lands. Um, this is a lot in, in Central America and Africa, around the world, so that cash crops can be grown to satiate the appetites of people in the US and other wealthy Western countries. And resources are stolen so that we can wear nice jewelry and drive nice cars and of course have our electronics. So the uh, materials necessary to uh, make these things are often extracted uh, at unfair prices or uh, stolen. Uh, but that's the reason that these governments are being overthrown. So when somebody rises up and says, no, you have to pay people a fair price, then the U.S. just sends their troops and overthrows the governments. So whether it's fighting with guns or fighting with backward laws to keep people uninformed, capitalism will do whatever is necessary to maintain its power. So this is my challenge. This is our challenge to you, okay? We know that capitalism and imperialism are very well organized and we have to organize ourselves in order to defeat it. That's our challenge. How do we organize ourselves? It can be defeated. And I think Cuba is an excellent example of how a country can overthrow capitalism, but they're still being oppressed by, um, by imperialism. So our challenge is for you to join or support an organization that's working to defeat imperialism or working to serve the people. It doesn't matter which organization, as long as it's an organization that's genuinely serving the people. Uh, engaging a process is increasing political education. Sit with a friend or a group of friends, read, discuss books, articles, programs like this one, invite them to programs uh, and help people become educated about the truth of what's going on in the world. Um, you can commit yourself to understanding uh, what's going on, who profits from the things that we desire and enjoy, and who suffers, and what can we do about it. Uh, and the important thing is to recognize that nothing exists in a vacuum. Uh, there's a reason the United States is not committed to education. There's a reason the United States is uh, struggling to uh, strangle and destroy Cuba and Cuba's accomplishments and to hide it. If you get a chance to travel to Cuba, Nothing defeats a lie more effectively than actually witnessing and experiencing the truth and then come back and share your experience with others. And most importantly, challenge complacency. Expose what you know to everybody else and encourage others to join with you and work with you. Um, so in the chat, we are going to put uh, some and I don't, I'm sorry, I'm having some difficulty for some reason, I'm not able to advance my slide. So I think in the chat, there was a, um, uh, some of our friends have placed some names of organizations. I'm going to um, stop sharing, I don't know what happened. Ah, there it is, okay. Okay, so we, we've uh, posted some names of organizations in the chat, or we're in the process of doing that. Uh, and these are organizations, certainly not by any means the only organizations, uh, but they are organizations that uh, we encourage you to learn more about. Um, they are organizations that maybe have been mentioned here or that uh, people who are on the panel this evening um, are representing. And, uh, and, you know, take a moment and go to their website, see what they're doing, um, learn about some of the um, the, the work, they're very, very important work. And, um, and 
do what you can to get involved and do support. And I think I'm going to leave it there. I'm not sure why I can't um, demonstrate, uh, uh, show the last screen, but we are in the process of putting that in the chat. So thank you very much. Um, and at this time, I guess I will turn the program back over to Terry. Terry, I'm going to try to put Hi. some of those in there as well. <laughs> so that? while you're, okay. I'm putting some things in the chat for all of you. And those of you watching on uh, YouTube Live, I put all the list of organizations Nancy referred to in the live chat. Um, so I have to thank both Catherine and Nancy. Boy, you're both such beautiful women and do such beautiful work. It's just really an honor to be in conversation with you this evening. We've got a few minutes left of our program today and um, specifically to your presentation, Nancy, there's two things that, um, that really jumped off out of the conversation for me because it's so pertinent to global affairs right now or the geopolitics and you specifically use the word geopolitics and you said lack of education, under education, illiteracy, keeps us from understanding geopolitics. And I think that sometimes uh, when we're on social media, you can tell, and elsewhere, mainstream media too, you can tell that sadly, a lot of the US citizens commenting don't necessarily know where Ukraine is on a map, don't have any understanding of, um, of the history of Russia, of Ukraine, of, of Europe and Eurasia in general, even you know last hundred years, much less the last thousand years. And this is a failure of our country, of our society, of our education system. And then um, the other thing you said was people, um, again, who are illiterate or undereducated have no analytical skills. And this, creates a population that is very, very, very um, susceptible to being propagandized. And I think we are in that moment now where everything that you had to share with us this today in your presentation really is showing us how it's been possible to, you know, stir up this frenzy, this pro-war frenzy and it's very, um, I mean, I don't think that's the only uh, purpose to the lack of funding public education um, in, in the US society, but it sure is a principle, it sure is one of the reasons. And it's so- and It's very, it's, very effective. It's been very effective because it's not only that people don't know anything about Russia, don't know anything about Ukraine, but they also don't know the other wars that the United States is fighting around the world. So every like website right you go, exactly. <laughs> and every website you go, you go on, there's opportunities, donate money, donate money, send money to you know, the people of Ukraine. But what about the other people? You, know, you don't see these initiatives. You don't see, you know, if I go to, I don't know, Amazon, if I go to YouTube, if I go to Wikipedia, every website has an opportunity to donate. Um, but you don't see this on behalf of other people who have been suffering just as much, if not more, for a very long time, um, who have had their countries um, bombed and destroyed, have been uh, turned into, a ref into refugee populations, 
Um, children are dying, but you don't see the children in Yemen. Um, you don't see the children in in any parts of the world except except Europe, um, because it seems like it's not number one. Um, there's a racist component to it. You know, the idea that Europeans are being killed is completely unacceptable. But there's also a, a, a political um, and ideological uh, aspect to it because it's Russia who's doing it and not the United States. So now it's being condemned, but the United States is doing exactly the same thing in many places and there's not a word on the news about it. So Catherine, any, any comments? You've, you've shared some things in the chat here. <laughs> Is there anything, ladies, that we should share uh, with our audience before we close our program today? I know we want to, um, you know, Nancy mentioned in her presentation about one of the things to overcome uh, the stereotypes uh, that U.S. has towards Cuba is to travel to Cuba. I want to, and I personally uh, think that is one of the number one educational tools, even if it's just independent travel, it's impossible to go experience any country, much less Cuba. It's uh, to not be changed. You know, any of us who travel, even if it's just for vacation, to go someplace and experience something for five days, 10 days or longer, you, are, you can't unsee what you've seen, what you've experienced. And so I would encourage uh, you to look at the Code Pink travel, uh, codepink.org and go to our travel page. We do go to Cuba and uh, would encourage us to travel with you. Uh, one of the people in our audience tonight is with uh, IFCO Pastors for Peace. They do fabulous delegations to Cuba as well. So would really encourage you to look at their website as well. The National Network on Cuba also organizes um, travel to Cuba and, uh, and the People's Forum out of New York City and many others. So there's plenty of opportunities and options to go see the country, meet the people and see what's really going on there outside of the U.S. media lens. So important. It's a life-changing experience and, and I encourage anybody who can make that trip to do it. It really is. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. So Nancy's sharing with you on the screen um, some of the things that we, uh, all three of us and our organizations and that we work with would encourage you to do. Um, oh, here's the code paint. Yeah, so, you're probably familiar with Code Pink, but I was told that this particular <laughs> program, the um, Powdered Milk to Cuba. We're raising program. money to send powdered milk to Cuba, and uh, we fully believe that a proper diet, proper nutrition makes uh, healthy students. And so we want to make sure that all the children in Cuba have access to dairy protein through powdered milk. So we're raising money. Uh, to send that to Cuba. And, also and you know, what's amazing is that the United States uh, uh, illegal uh, blockade against Cuba uh, considers uh, milk and baby formula, infant formula, to be products that cannot go to Cuba because it's considered to be a threat. It's amazing. 
yeah, you're keeping the population healthy. So that's a that's a national security threat to the United States. Yeah, no, it's exactly. Really sickening. Yes. <laughs> it's just sickening. So it's so the powdered milk campaign is a break the blockade issue, and it's also you know keeping keeping uh, students healthy. Pro, you know, good nutrition before starting school every day. Okay, so some here's of these a, others are just organizations that give you an opportunity to engage with you know partners of ours that are are doing solidarity work on behalf of Cuba, with Cuba and with other, um, uh, other countries as well. Um, so once again, these are just websites of initiatives, in some instances, uh, initiatives to um, support uh, uh, pro programs and campaigns uh, like health, like getting um, uh, uh, syringes to Cuba in order to provide them the opportunity to um, vaccinate their population, um, other organizations that are helping to provide milk to uh, provide sufficient protein. Um, there are lots of Cuban solidarity organizations and please take time to visit some of these websites and, and uh, you know, go through the website, you know, look at the work that they're doing. Um, and, and if you find an organization that you feel that you can support if you can support them financially, if you can support them with your uh, whatever skills or you have, any way you can, um, that would be an excellent thing to do. And that's part of the challenge is, um, uh, you know, to just connect with with alliances and and others who are working to tell the truth and to change lives. Thank you so much, Nancy. And Catherine, can you tell our audience where um, where we can find your work, your fabulous work, your film, and um, and other yes. projects that you're involved? In? Yes. So I think I dropped in the chat. We've been putting a lot of our work up on uh, YouTube, and I believe oh, I just is. there's our YouTube page. So we have if you go to the videos. That is Luz Mila, one of the creators, the filmmakers that were, are part of our filmmaking team. And if you scroll down, we have, we're releasing a whole profile, a series of profiles of Maestros Voluntarios from 1960, as well as liberation education stories from the US, you know, Cuba, the US, Brazil, and beyond. We were doing a lot of work on Paulo Freire and the uh, legacy of Paulo Freire. Last September was the 100th year anniversary of Paulo Freire. We're doing some work with uh, on Ferry's legacy in collaboration with the uh, Paulo Ferry Institute in Sao Paulo and also with the MST. And so invite folks to check out some of the work. You'll see most of it's shorts, like just even looking here now, right? Like two minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes. Um, most of it is subtitled into English, not everything, but we're working on that little by little. So hope that people, and it's all up there free. Um, for people to use in their own organizing work around Cuba, around quality education in the United States, your own communities and contexts. And um, really excited to see all these organizations working to support Cuba to end the blockade. I wanted to also just um, mention again, the caravans. Folks mentioned IFCO, Pastors for Peace, but the importance, the historical and present importance of the caravans of being like these citizen initiatives to go break the blockade with our bodies and with really needed uh, humanitarian aid is participating on the caravans have been one of the most fun and exciting things uh, that I feel like I've been able to do, you know, with and around Cuba. So I'd encourage folks to check that out and 
just really thankful for this dialogue today. Thank you. I'm so thankful to have had this conversation with both of you today. Really a wonderful opportunity. And again, a shout out to Leslie Salgado of Friends of Latin America, one of our broadcast partners who brought us all together with this theme and subject tonight. Really, uh, really wonderful. So thank you again, Catherine and Nancy. I wanna remind our audience that you've been watching What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, Code Pink's weekly YouTube program of hot news out of the region. We broadcast every Wednesday evening, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Code Pink YouTube Live. And also uh, be sure to catch Code Pink Radio. Code Pink Radio broadcasts every Thursday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern on WBAI out of New York City and WPFW out of Washington, D.C. Both projects can be found on Apple Podcasts. So uh, thank you again, ladies. Thank you to our audience. And we will see all of you next Wednesday. Thank, thank you. you.